This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest, Dwight Gooden, is known especially to baseball fans as the once brilliant 19-year-old pitching phenom from Tampa, Florida. He had a blistering fastball and a notoriously deceptive curveball. Those two pitches earned him the Rookie of the Year Award in 1984. In 85, he won the Cy Young. In 86, he led the Mets to one of their best seasons ever, ending with a World Series championship. Gooden had some winning seasons after that, but nothing matched those first three years. Instead, his public battles with alcohol and cocaine became the dominant story of his career, leading sports historians to write about what might have been rather than what was. At the very least, Dwight Gooden's addiction ruined what should have been the greatest day of his life, the 1986 World Series win. After the game was over, I'm celebrating in the clubhouse with my teammates. Then I go on a bike in the trainer's room. I call my dad. We talk about the game, and he's happy, and we're celebrating. And then the next call went right to my friend who um, knew the dealer, and my friend was the go-to guy, told him I was coming by a little later. And my goal was to go by there, get some drugs, and meet my teammates at a local bar after that. But unfortunately... You know, addiction, what happened? It, don't, it don't allow that. Right, so your friend, a friend that you knew, called the dealer for you to tee up the ball for you to go score. Well, what it was is um, I wanted a, a lot of stuff. I wanted to party and celebrate. Unfortunately, we went to the housing projects in Long Island. With the dealer? With the dealer. So I'm in there with about 10 people. I probably know two. That's a friend from Tampa and the dealer. So we're sitting there partying, having a good time, and now I'm thinking I'll be here for maybe an hour, then I'm going to cut out. But once those rails hit the mirror... Yeah, once you start, yeah, it's, once you start, it's done. Yeah, yeah it's and kryptonite. I, yeah, that was always my track record. I'm just going to do a little bit. Then three days later, you're there doing the same thing. Dwight Gooden has been sober since 2011 when he went on Celebrity Rehab. And he has just written a deeply personal book entitled Doc, a memoir which chronicles everything from his complicated relationship with his father to his meteoric rise and his drug use and the toll that took on him. You come from an era when... Uh, drugs predominate as much as alcohol, or, or alcohol is one drug on a menu of drugs. I mean, because alcohol certainly is a drug. As you, as we, would you acknowledge that? Yes, one hundred percent. Alcohol is definitely a drug. And yeah. the era I was in, what, like you say, um, before me was the heavy drinking. You know, in the seventies, what have you, and probably pot from right here. My era was basically, you know, cocaine and drinking. The alcohol was available in every clubhouse you go to, whether it was on the road or at home. And even at home, and when you say alcohol was available, what was the kind of culture of that? Meaning, when the game was over, all professional ball players and management and coaching kind of acknowledged that when the game was over, we, we we gave it our best. We're pro ball players, and we've earned a drink, and everybody has a drink. So they had a full bar there. Yeah, pretty much it was normal. Like you go into the lounge where you got the food, you got the water and the drinks, and then you got the beer, and then the private stash in the back with the hard stuff. Especially like at the day game, 
we'll stand there because we want to wait for the traffic that out. And we just sit around talking baseball, talking about the games, and just drinking. You started your professional career when you were how old? My professional career, I was 19. Well, <laughs> I, I was drafted at 17. Uh, played a year and a half in the minors. I get to the majors at 19. And, and what was amazing was um, at the game, if we are on the road, it was always one of the veteran players say, Doc, you're pitching tomorrow. If I said no, they said, okay, you're out with us. And I remember this one time I did a commercial, Pepsi commercial with Catfish Hunter. And so they started playing the commercial. We're in Chicago at the day game. We go to this bar, and the commercial comes on. And the bartender's looking at the commercial. He's looking at me, looking at the commercial. Then he goes, I don't think you're old enough to be in here. <laughs> you know, so he said, I, you, could, you could hang around here, but I can't serve you anymore. I call. One of the traps of fame is everybody knows who you are, and the, <laughs> they know who you are on every level. But, but, yes, but so when you're 19 years old, or even when you get drafted at 17, but I would imagine, I've got to believe that even when you were in AAA and you were up in the, you were in the minors and you were 17, they protected you more. They shielded you from certain things more. Or were you sticking your hand into a cooler and pulling a beer out of there, too, when you were 17? Definitely pulling beer out. You uh, were. Oh, at that so you, time. So once you're in that league, once you're in with that group of people, you're one of them, and you act like them on every level. At every level, you know, myself, I was a people pleaser. So being a people pleaser, you're just trying to fit in. You got new teammates, you know, guys that's out of college or been in the minors for a while. But here I am, you're out of high school. A lot of times, like, again, alcohol in the clubhouse was available. So at the games, I was just like the norm. So you started drinking. You now, you, had you been drinking on the streets of Florida when you were hanging out in those neighborhoods you grew up in with your mom and dad? A lot of times, like in high school, like after, at a football game, you know, on a Friday night after the game's over, we had this pizza place we would go to and hang out, and guys would have drinks, and I would be a part of that. You would? Yes. So it's not like the kid who's on the mound. When you're pitching as a little boy, as you describe in the book, and your dad's teaching the underage kid how to throw the curveball, you started throwing the curveball when you were seven years old, correct? Yes. I saw so very young. your dad taught you, against the advice of some people, maybe you were too young, your dad taught you how to throw the curveball. And then, and I think it's safe to say, I mean, I'm only being half cute when I say this, your first addiction was throwing the curveball, wasn't it? Oh, definitely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that's where it all started. That's your and first addiction. My, yeah, once, I, you used to, once you learned yeah. how to throw the curveball, you couldn't stop throwing it. Couldn't stop. You? you want to do it. And I think a lot of times, like you say, now kids are taught not to throw a curveball until they get in their teen years, you know, yeah. 13 or 14. It's just my opinion. Uh, I don't think nothing's wrong with a kid throwing a curveball, say, at 10, 11. I wouldn't recommend throwing 10, 11 curveballs a game. But if the mechanics are right, if you got your arm in the right position to throw it, you know, two or three a game, I don't think it would hurt. But that kid who, when someone would get a hit off you, when you didn't perform well, you admit in the book, you know, you got very upset. Yeah. You cracked up a few times. You get really emotional. You're a boy who's learning how to handle this stress and handle this pressure. When does that kid pick up his first drink? When does that kid start in that? You watched your family go through that? Yeah, actually, um, I found out later in my recovery that my dad was actually an alcoholic. At the time, growing up in the house, you just think it's a normal thing guys do. They come home from work, they eat dinner, they sit, you know, watch a game, and they have some beers. So basically, my first sip of alcohol was probably about 10, 11 years old, where I took a sip of my dad's beer when he wasn't watching. When, oh, when he wasn't watching. He wasn't watching, and unfortunately, I liked the taste. And I remember four or five months later after that, we had a family picnic, and they had a cooler beer. And then a buddy of mine just jumped in the cooler and drank a beer, and that's the first time my mom jumped me because I was right. pretty wasted from the one beer at that now, age. Now, when you, did either of your parents, your dad, if I read the book correctly, your dad cared about you a great deal. Yes. And he invested very heavily in your uh, playing ball. Oh, 100%. So was he on you about the drug and alcohol thing? Was he riding you about that? You know what's amazing? The first time I knew I really hurt my dad was... My mom was more the vocal one about that. My dad was, uh, he always participated in my baseball you know, games at an early age, as well as my school activities. I remember in 1987, the first time I tested positive, I had to come home and, and tell my parents that I was going to treatment. My mom was like, okay, that's good, son. Now you can get the help you need. My dad just kind of dropped his head, never said a word. That probably hurt me more knowing that I hurt him by him not saying anything. I'd rather for him to that say... That was it. how he expressed his deepest disappointment, but he didn't say anything. Well, he didn't say anything. I'd rather for him to say, you know, son, you're a loser or whatever. I just wanted something. But he never did. He never said one word. So you go from sticking your hand in a cooler at a family event, and then you're sticking your hand in a cooler in the uh, AAA ball there in the minors when you're playing for... What, what, what organization were you drafted you? Yeah, uh, I was drafted by the Mets. You were in Tidewater? No, actually, my first year, when I got drafted, I went to Kingsport, Tennessee, which is rookie ball. Tidewater was the AAA. I ended up going there my second year for the playoffs in the World Series. And so describe what happens when you're going to go into the big leagues. I'll tell you what was amazing. When I was in AAA, Davey Johnson was the manager. And I pitched well for him in the playoffs in the AAA World Series. And he said, wherever I manage next year, you're on the team. 
that winter he got the job, the big league manager. So just jokingly, I called him. I said, David, remember what you told me? He said, oh, don't worry about it. You come to spring training, you're going to be on the team. About two weeks before spring training started, I get a call because I went at that time you had to have three years in the minors before you was on, get put on the roster. I only had one year and a half. So I get the call, you're coming to big league camp as a non-roster player. So the whole while doing spring training, the front office kept saying, we're going to send him to double A or maybe triple A. But then David called to me and said, don't worry about it. You're going to make the team. How do they do that? Well, three yeah, years in the minors is, is recommended, or it's a rule. It's, it's a rule for it's been on the roster, but you can ha- add a guy at this first year before he's ready. But you don't technically have to. But after three years in the minors, you either got to put the guy on your roster, or you got to put him through waivers where any team can claim that guy. Got it. So, the last game of spring training, we're playing in St. Petersburg, and after the game, we're flying out to Cincinnati to start the season. So I didn't want to bring my bags into the clubhouse, you know, to take with me because I hadn't officially heard anything. So I kept my bags in the car just in case. So about the fifth inning of the last spring training game, David Johnson comes there and he shakes my hand and says, congratulations, you made the team. <laughs> I'm like, wow. And at that point, I mean, you got this great feeling that you're living your childhood dream. But part of me is thinking, man, if I'm really ready for this, you know, I'm only 19. Then I remember calling my dad, told him I made the team, and just hearing the joy. Because my dad, he didn't really show any, you know, you couldn't tell. He's a quiet happy. guy. Yeah, very quiet guy, laid back. And you didn't know, he never showed any emotions. But that day, he, was, he showed some emotion over the phone, and we enjoyed that. So you go to New York when? What month of what year? We got to New York. We actually um, we opened up in Cincinnati, which was great for me because I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan. Because growing up in Tampa, they had spring training down there in the 70s. Right. So we played in Cincinnati, and I get my first start actually in Houston in the old Astrodome. Uh, my parents are watching the game. I get that win. It was great. And then we go first to first game you won. Yes, nineteen years old. Nineteen years old. How many strikeouts you have? I think I had five. And, and, and you know what? <laughs> Funny how people remember this. Oh, certain things you remember. You know, you, God, I can't believe yeah. these athletes are like. I think I hit yeah. the ball. You yeah. talked to God. I was like, I think I oh. double bogeyed that hole back in nineteen seventy four. I remember after that game, my dad said, "How do you feel?" I say, "I feel good. I should win a lot of games." My very next start is in Chicago at Wrigley Field. I don't get out of third inning. I mean, I get just get shell. Get shell. So now my dad says, well, son, what do you think? Now I'm saying, I don't know if I'm ready. Just from yeah. two stars, you go back amazing. and forth. So it's just amazing. Yeah. Those are the two extremes. How many games did you pitch the first season when you went? The first season, I think I had about 32 starts. You had 32 starts. Yes. So they were all in on you. They wanted you. Oh, they was there. Yes, definitely. You, in the, were, you were in the rotation. Yeah, I was in the rotation. I got uh, 17 wins, 17-9, made the all-star team my first year, right. led the league in strikeouts. And it was amazing because, <laughs> as you mentioned— when I first got there, it wasn't too much expectations, but after the All-Star break, it was a lot of expectations. It was more seats, I mean, more fans in the seats the days I would pitch. It was more media How'd there. How'd you feel? How'd you feel? At that time, I felt great, you know, because did I felt— Did that get you high? It did. And then when you're off, you want to maintain that high. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, my first year, like you said, it was definitely a drilling rush. Having all the fans there cheering for you, and you're striking out guys. And you're winning. And you're winning. It was no better feeling than that. And plus, at my age, you're having fun. You're pitching against a lot of guys. You analyze just a year prior to that. And then the next year, 1985, I have an even better year. I have a career year. And, you know, you go out there. It was almost like being in What did you do differently the second year? Were you just more confident? Second year, I was more confident. I had more relaxed? More relaxed. I had a, another year of experience under my belt. And not that I was cocky, but I had a lot of confidence. And Gary Carter came over that year. He was the you know, catcher. Like all-star catcher for me, which is a big plus for me. What did Carter bring for you as a catcher that helped you? I think the way he communicated with me, he didn't want to just win. He wanted to dominate. And me, even though I wanted to dominate, but like say if I was winning a game 2 nothing, and then I, or 15 nothing, and I started just messing around with pitches, he would come out there and get in my face and say, you know, don't like nothing. Let's just go stick out these guys, you know. stick what you know, let's totally dominate these guys. So when you're facing a batter... Have you pre-assessed before a game every single batter you're going to face in that game? The thing was, I only had two pitches, fastball and curve. So a lot of times it's like, this guy's a great fastball hitter and can't throw this guy curveball for strikes. And I'm thinking, well, I shouldn't be pitching. I'm done. You know, but basically, I always pitch to my strength and make the hitters adjust. And a lot of times what I would do also, I used to like to watch the box scores. Like if I knew I was going to face the Cardinals, say, three days from now, I'll start watching the box scores, seeing who's hot, who's doing what a couple of days before that. So I have an idea which guy's swinging the bat well. So if you have... I'm not a baseball player. I love going to the to the ball game. I love watching a baseball game live. It's a great treat. So you're standing there, and you're at the top of your game. Now you're 20 years old. You're in your second season. You're more confident. And you look at, in your mind, an imaginary strike zone, the knees to the shoulders. You've got the home plate there. In those four corners, high and tight, high and outside, low and tight, low and outside, can you basically throw the ball on a fastball anywhere you want it? You can make it go where you want it to go. 1985, without doubt. 1985, it was like... <laughs> From 
the first game to the you, you know, my made, last you start. You picked your spot. I was just right there. Didn't have to think about it. Everything just came and and the ball would go where you made it go. Basically, go right there. I was saying how many probably, miles an hour? Oh, I was anywhere from ninety five to ninety eight. 95 to 98 miles. Who's the fastest pitcher in baseball that you know of? Right now? Who, who was over time? At that time, time I would at say. At any time, who's been the fastest? I think Nolan Ryan. What, what did he throw, 99? They, supposedly, they say he topped out at uh, 103. Now you see these guys throwing 100, 99, but also you have to remember all in the stadiums, they got the radar guns and they're, they're turned up like three or four miles an hour faster It's just for the fans. And, oh, I see. And unfortunately, I found out the hard way. <laughs> I went to Cleveland towards the end of my career, and when I left the Yankees in 97, I probably was topping out maybe 92, 93. So I go to Cleveland, and pitching at home, and the game, the clock's got me at 96, 97. I'm thinking, wow, my fastball's back. back. I'm, I'm back. back. <laughs> Unfortunately, three innings. What did I have for breakfast today? <laughs> Write it down. Ready to go. Unfortunately, three innings later, you know, I have given up seven runs, four home runs. Who knows how many hits. So now, when I get knocked out of the game, I go in the room with the guy that keeps the uh, video, and I'm looking at my chart, seeing who did what, and then I see, like, 87, 88, 89. And I'm asking, what is these numbers here? He said, that's your velocity. I said, out there, had me throwing 97. He said, no, no, I was turned up for the fans. So I found out the hard way. The, the, the little bit of show business. Thing. Yeah, so now when you see a lot of, a lot of these guys throwing 98, like 99. Like a laugh track in the comedy. Really, yeah, I definitely. know the feeling. So when you're out there when you're younger, give me an example of a batter that always vexed you, that really just drove you crazy. Chili Davis, hands down. When he was with the San Francisco Giants, I was with the Mets. <laughs> He had me. It didn't matter if I was on top of my game or not. He would get hits off me. And he about, did. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? I think it was just, just the way you're both built. I think what he hit, was built to hit your ball. Yeah, I think the way how. he was, he wasn't like um, intimidated by me because a couple of times I threw at his head to try to intimidate him. It didn't matter. He just was staying. If I didn't have my good stuff, he was hitting home runs. If I had good stuff, he was getting base hits. So when you go high and tight, you do it to intimidate them. Most of the time, yeah. It's just you're not doing. You it want to brush them back, right? You don't want to hurt nobody or hit them in the head, but just throw them. You try want to, to think. To start thinking and keep them from getting comfortable. But Chile didn't phase him, and it's it's weird because some hitters, when you talk to them, some pitchers. They just see the ball a lot better than other pitchers because, like, our number five starter, Chili couldn't get a hit off of him, but I'm, I'm like, the number one starter, and he's just wearing me out. It's, it's unreal how that happens sometimes. What was it like for you? I mean, obviously, often in baseball, pitchers are not known as great hitters. Right. Is it just because the way their their musculature and their whole physiognomy is such where they just don't swing about the same way? No. You'd imagine that a pitcher, in, 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 just in terms of mechanics, would be a very good hitter. Well, most pitchers, like in uh, Little League in high school or college, was great hitters. But what happens when you get drafted as a pitcher, you don't get to work on it no more. They don't care how you hit. Right. It's then why you're throwing the ball. Throw the ball and work on your button. So if you're in the mound, like, say, for <laughs> five years without picking up a bat— you just lose a little bit. But I was fortunate enough to, I had eight home runs in my career, which I was very proud of, and I won a Silver Sluggers Award. That's like the best hitting pitcher for that year. So I got that. I just take a lot of pride in my hitting as well. Well, now, um, I don't want to be too reductive about the state of Florida, but uh, Florida, back then, in the 80s and 90s, Florida was to cocaine what Detroit is to cars. You know, I mean, there was a lot of drugs down there they were in the Miami Vice uh, oh, yeah. era, so to speak. Were you into cocaine when you were down there before you came up here? Not, no, I... Um, what was your introduction to cocaine? My introduction to cocaine... Which was, was your actually, drug of choice, correct? Yes. Yeah. My introduction to cocaine was actually... I had a cousin who was a dealer, and he also was a pimp. So I, w- I was going to his house to get some pot. Where was he? In Tampa. Okay. So I was going to his house. This was um, the one of 1985. I go to his house... So to you were get, already playing? Yes. So I go to his house to get some pot. Um, he said, I don't have it right now. Let me run out and get it. So when he left the house to go get it, I'm kind of, you know, moping around his house, and now I see two girls in this room making out. And so I was turned on by that. They see me, they say, oh, you, you know, look, you want to come in here, you want to have some fun with us? And so I'm thinking, yeah, that'd be nice, you know, to have some fun. But they say, well, do a little bit of this, what we're doing, and you can join in with us. And at first I was like fighting, I said, no, no, I'm not going to touch that or do it. But what they was doing to each other was attracting them to me. So I pulled a bit on my tongue, and it was like my whole face just went numb. Yeah. And I was thinking, I'll just do one, it's not going to do anything, and I'll join yeah. in with them. Unfortunately, that one line I did, I fell in so love with So in a funny it. way, sex was the gateway to cocaine for you. Yes, and that's always been my track record, like strip clubs, hanging out at bars, stuff like that. Eventually, I get the same results every time, so I changed my whole way of living. Now, why do you think that, I mean, one of the things that happens, how old are you now? Now I'm 48. Right, you're 48, I'm 55. And now, for you... I wonder, have you been able to kind of revisit? Because you talk about your childhood, mm-hmm. and you talk about the contradiction, you, and you don't necessarily use that word. I was very, I read it very carefully mm-hmm. when you talked about you know the kind of craziness in your household. Right. Your uncle mm-hmm. shot your aunt in front of you. Well, it was my it, sister. It, it, it was your, it was your brother-in-law. Yeah, but brother-in-law you called him uncle. Yeah. 
GW. Uncle GW. GW. Yeah. But he wasn't really your uncle. He was your brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. From your much older sister. Yes. So you were six years old and your sister was 20 years old. It was like a 14-year difference, if I read correctly. Right. So you're, you're in that scenario, and this guy shoots your sister in the head yeah. right in front of you. Yeah. You grab that baby, you run into the bathroom, and you lock yourself in the bathroom. Right. And I'm wondering, you talk about how much your dad cared about you mm-hmm. and how much your mom fought to hold on to your dad mm-hmm. and put up with a lot of shit from him. Right. And you watched all this. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the love you got and the support you got, but it sounds like your family— like much of my family, mm-hmm. there's love and support and a lot of good things, but there's a lot of nuttiness going on as well. Mm-hmm. And did you feel that that's what you needed to medicate yourself against? Sex, drugs, alcohol, all these things. Can you put your finger on why were you doing those things? Or was think, it just boredom? No, I think it was a situation of early on in, in my career, it was boredom. Like when I would come home, like in 1985, when I would come home from playing my season, most of my friends were still in school or they was working. So the boredom was there while I just ride around, you know, drinking in the car, trying to pick up women. Um, so you ran around with a bunch of your peers, people that were your age, young people. Yes, that was my when, age. When you but, left the ballpark, you went into a world of people that were just hanging out. Right. But I'm saying when the season was over, I would come back to Tampa. Oh, you did. And at that time, like my friends I grew up with, they was either working or someone was in school. The ones that wasn't working in school were just hanging on the street corners, hanging out. And you came down there with a pocket full of money. Right. So we'll hang out. And everything was on Dwight. Yes, everything, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I would hang out with those guys, and so that's where the boredom came from, just riding around every day, just drinking, killing time or whatever, not knowing that it was going to eventually turn into a problem. So then, like, after the 85 season in 1986, I started doing drugs in New York for the first time. It was more of the peer pressure. It was more of, of the media pressure and me putting pressure on myself. For example, everything was compared to 85. If I won a game... Three nothing, complete game shutout. But if I only had, you know, five strikeouts, the first question would be, "What happened? You don't have five strikeouts." Yeah, they're picking you apart. So that's when I started medicating myself. Then it became pre-meditated, where every game I pitched, I that game I was going to get high. I was either going to get high to celebrate the win, or I was going to get high because I didn't pitch that well to forget about the game. Right to put the loss behind you. Right, and then like as you mentioned earlier about me, um, with, with my sister being shot, she got shot six times, and then one time she got shot in the head. The bullet's still actually in her head, where she has seizures from it. Well, I grabbed my nephew and went in the bathroom, we got in the tub, and I pulled Kurt thing, thinking he's going to come in and get us next. The thing that was weird, I didn't find out until basically uh, 2011, when I was in my last treatment. Every time I would get high, I would always go to the bathroom, whether I was home by myself, whether it was a restaurant, whether it was whatever. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I would go to the bathroom. These ghosts so, and these echoes of what we put up with. Definitely. So I totally relate to that, and I would go to the bathroom, and it was pointed out to me. I never realized that I put it together. You know, for me, I remember when I started to work— uh, oddly, when I was thinking about your life and your book, it's similar because in terms of acting, I was in Tidewater. Oh, okay. I was in the Port St. Lucie of yeah. acting. I did a daytime TV show, a soap opera here in New York for a couple of years, and I went mm-hmm. to L.A., and you get called up into the big leagues, right. so to speak. Oh. And then you start to make big league money. Oh. I mean, you and I have more in common than I thought because yeah. as I was reading the book, I realized that then I got called up to do other things, and I started to make more money. And, you know, when I was focused on that work, I mean, the high that I got, I got high from the work. Yes. And when I would go home, there was this lull, you know what I mean? Like my adrenaline, I was, I was, I was high all day from the energy of being a young working actor. I went from one studio to the next, I'd audition for this movie, I'd get a part. In 1983 to 1985, that period was my white hot period. Because mm-hmm. I'm in L.A., my dad died. Mm. My dad died of cancer. He was 55 years old, April of 1983. And I'm out there, and I'm booked, man. I'm, I sign deals. I mean, I can't come back. Mm. I go to work, and when I left work, I felt this tremendous kind of depression, like this kind of lull, like I had to go do something else mm. to get high. Did you feel that way? I had the same thing. My problem was trying to fill that void, like you were talking about. A lot of times, the downtime of being bored is a dangerous spot for me to be in because I never had a hobby. When baseball season would be over... Now you come home to Tampa, you know, it's not like in New York you can go to concerts, you can go to plays, you can go to movies. There's stuff to do with Tampa. It's totally opposite. just come down and there's nothing going on. Yeah. So I totally relate what you said. I will feel that time. You weren't taking photography classes down in Tampa. (laughs) No. (laughs) At the Tampa Institute of Photography. Yeah. Yeah. So so you come home, you got all this time, you got six months of um, the off-season, four months before you start training, start hanging out at clubs, doing more drugs, and it was just basically trying to fill that void and not knowing you're thinking— this is fun. 
No, it, looking back at it, it wasn't fun. It caused more trouble than anything. Did money cause you trouble too? Money caused me trouble too. I would say. How much money did you make your first? I mean, this is all public record. How much money did you make your first season throwing in in professional baseball? Not not well, the AAA, not not the farm. Well, I first got drafted. When you first got drafted. I got eighty five thousand. You had eighty five thousand. Was your first time for how long? Did that last for uh, how many years? For. A year and a half, because then I was in the majors. Right. Then you went to the majors, and how much did they pay you? My rookie year, I think the minimum at that time was 60000 But my rookie year, once after the All-Star break, I made more money off the field than I did my contract. How much money did you make? Off the field that year, I probably made about one point five, right. and then plus the, um, the minimum that I was getting, 60000 so When did they renegotiate your contract with the Mets? Well, I didn't get a long-term deal until 1988. At that point, I got, like I think it was $5.5 million for three years, and at that point, it was the highest-paid player at that time. For the first decade of his career, anyone driving along 42nd Street would be greeted by a towering, multi-story mural of Gooden painted on the side of a building by Nike. He was young, arms outstretched, mid-pitch. Dwight Gooden was in complete control. That was amazing. At that point, that's when I knew the things I was doing was... <laughs> it was working. It was working, <laughs> yeah. Because as a player, a young player, when you're going through that, you're not aware of the... What you're really doing. I mean, you're aware that you're winning games and you're getting strikeouts, but you're not really aware of the impact you have on the you're game. You're the king. And that, at the you're time, the king. Did you feel like the king? Not really. Only time I felt like the king was the day that I pitched in 1985. That day, I just felt like... That season was a good year. Yeah, that season was a good year in you, 1985. You felt really strong that year. Right. So even coming to the ballpark, you just felt like this is my time because pulling into the... Why do you think you didn't do so well in 86? What happened? Well, 86 I did. I won 17 games in 86, right. but it wasn't 85. R.J. Reynolds on the warning track. He jumped. In a moment, Doc Gooden gets questionable advice from a doctor and takes it. This is Alec Baldwin. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting Mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get Mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for Mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for Mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Major League Baseball was hardly immune to the cultural excesses of the 1980s, and the 86 Mets were known as a hard-partying team. Even so, Dwight Gooden was able to set limits, in a sense. I went from um, 87 to 94 with just drinking. How I did that, I have no idea, really? without using. I think part of me will help me do that because I was being tested. Right. 
And so, so talk about the, what it was like back then, the test policy. How did that work? The test policy was once you uh, test positive for something or if you get in trouble some kind of way with alcohol or drugs. And you did. Then you get into this testing program. So how did they know you were in trouble with drugs and alcohol? Well, I went to rehab in 87. Right. Like, so describe uh, that. What happened? Obviously in 86, missing the parade. Right. And I go to spring training in 1987. I'm doing coke, you know, not obviously doing the games, but I'm doing coke, like I said, that night. And in spring training, you have to be at the ballpark really early. So I did. I'm coming in there. I'm sure it looked like I've been up, you know, all day, all night. So then they call me in and say, you know, with all these rumors going, let's put the rumors to rest. Can we test you? I say, sure, you can test me because I know I hadn't did anything the night before. So obviously the test come back positive. So they give me an option. They say, you can go to rehab and we'll continue paying your salary or we can suspend you without pay. So that was easy. So I said, I'll go to rehab so I can continue being paid, even though still at that time I'm in treatment. I'm still thinking I don't have a problem. So I was just marking days off the calendar to the third days was up. Get out of rehab. Now I'm bike working out with the Mali teams. And then when I get on the plane to go join the team, I'm right back to drinking. So from 87 to 94, I didn't, I didn't use drugs, but I was still drinking. You know, so testing kind of scared you? Testing scared me. And plus it, it helped me for a little bit of period of time. But it was just a matter of time. Well, I was going to go back because I was still drinking. And so, when, so when testing helped to keep you in line, and then after 94, it didn't. Right. Well, happened, where were well, you that season? What happened was um, in 94, the situation where, like I said, it was already premeditated that, that I was definitely going to use again, given opportunity. So in 94, the first game of the season, I break my toe. So I get put on a deal. So now I'm rehabbing, you know, getting back in shape. And so then when doctors give me clearance to start playing, I go down to the minor leagues just to get some innings in and build my arm strength up. And then right away, the disease tell me, hey, they're not testing you down here. I can get high while I'm down here. I relapse, and now when I join the team in Cincinnati, there's the guy from Indy Baseball waiting to test me. He tests me, obviously it's positive, gets suspended. Then I go to uh, Betty Ford for you know 30 days. I get out of there. So they wanted me to come back to New York to meet the uh, Major League Baseball doctors before I went to Tampa. All I had to hear was the one doctor says, why don't you just drink? I don't do drugs. <laughs> as soon as he said that, I'm thinking, even though I know, <laughs> even though I, know I shouldn't, I've been to two treatments at that time, and I know I can't drink. So I said, wow, maybe I could do it different this time. Obviously, when I leave that meeting, now I'm on a plane flying home to Tampa to see my family. I'm drinking on a plane. I get off that plane. I don't see my family for three days. You pick up right where you left off. Definitely, definitely. You pick up right where, which yes. is what they say. For me, I... When I got sober, when I stopped drinking and I stopped taking drugs, which was many years ago when I was very young, it, it changed a lot of things for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really changed my attitude toward what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. I began to see the potential. I, I don't want to say that it made me uh, overwhelmingly cynical. That may be true, nonetheless. Right. But it definitely made me more thoughtful and it made me more aware of where there was the unhealthiness in a lot of things we do, relationships with people, you know, what what was a healthy relationship? What was a healthy relationship with my family? Mm. And what was your relationship like with your parents uh, now that you're rich and famous and, and honored and you have all these awards and you're coming apart? Like my mom, she didn't care about that fame and still today she... She can would she come and see you? Did you spend time with her? She would come up like during the season to see me, but she wouldn't. She maybe came to maybe two games. She came to one in Houston, my f- very first start. She came to the All Star game in 1986, and maybe two starts in New York. My mom is uh, a real Southern girl. She's from Georgia, where they grow their own vegetables and fruit, and you know, work on the cotton field and all that stuff. So, baseball, she enjoyed it more when I was a kid than professionally because right. she didn't like all the commotion that went with it. Right. So, for my dad, um, he kind of. Treat him in the same, but at the same time, I mean, he was enjoying all the stuff that was going on. I mean, he he liked that because when I started playing baseball, it initially it was his dream, then it became my dream. And as I mentioned in the book, where a lot of with my parents, like they had me at a later time in the stage. Like I have five siblings, three brothers, two yeah. sisters, and I'm the youngest by 13 years. Yeah. So I came later on. So um, obviously I was a sport kid. My mom was very strict. You know, very direct with stuff. Where my dad kind of gave me a pass with a lot of things, as long as I was yeah. playing baseball. Yeah. Without naming names, uh, obviously, would you say that drug usage? I mean, alcohol. It's uh, that's always been the case throughout history. But would you say that drug usage, and particularly cocaine usage, what, what was the cocaine and drug usage like among professional athletes? During the from, from when you started to when you finally got sober in two thousand. Yeah, I think that. Um, 
Obviously, in the 80s, it was, it was available pretty much any time you wanted it. And a lot of people you knew were doing it. There's a lot of people doing it. And unfortunately, the 86 Mets got labeled as a, a party team. Right. At that time, in the early 80s, all teams was partying. But because we were successful and was in New York, we got pointed out. Um, a lot of stuff that he said was true. But other teams and their police were doing the same thing. I think— um, Who was a person that didn't party who was kind of a straight arrow? Who was the Boy Scout on the team who would come up to you, if any, and wag their finger in their face and say, shame on you, don't yeah. you do that? We had several guys that didn't drink and didn't party. But they never, like, pointed a finger or thought they was better. Or, so no one came to you like a, like a patriarchal figure put his hand in you and said, hey, man, you got to slow down. No, prime example, uh, Gary Carter— Great guy. I mean, a tri- straight arrow. Obviously, he was a great player, but even a better person off the field. He never drank. He never hung out with us. Anything like that like he would go out to eat with us. But once we were saying, "We'll go out on the strip," he said, "Okay, if you guys need me or whatever, I'm in my room." But the next day, we'd come in with the red eyes. You know, you hung over. He never judged you. He just said, yeah. "You know, you okay? Everything's good. You had a good time. Good. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to work." And that was it. Yeah. But nobody came to you and said. And tried to intervene. Is what I mean. I think one time, um, obviously, when the rumor started, even coaches or management. No, but the, well, you felt cared. It wasn't about you. Right. The, the one time that happened with me was uh, in 86 when the rumors started flying around that I was partying and whatever. Actually, Ray Knight, he came up to me and said, Doc, you know, I'm hearing a lot of stuff that's going on in rumors about, they said there's a black player on the team that's out, you know, doing drugs, hanging out. And again, I denied it to him. I said, no, that's not me. He said, okay, I'll take your word to that. Sports is dominated uh, on every level, from Major League Baseball and basketball, obviously, and football, every great sport and team sport and many individual sports are dominated by African-American players. Mm-hmm. But did you find that when you got into the world of Major League Ball, was racism ever a, a, a quality you had to deal with, ever? Um, maybe just a little bit, my first year. Um like, I grew up in a neighborhood in Tampa where there's, like, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of whites, or whatever. So I grew up accustomed to that. So I remember getting you drafted. You grew up accustomed to what? Everybody kept to themselves? No, just the different cultures right. living in the same neighborhood. Right. So I was aware of that even at school, you know, school activities. That's just the way it was. Like, I used to hear my mom and my dad tell stories. Uh, obviously, I was aware of the Jackie Robinson story. But I never witnessed that, so I couldn't relate until 1982 when I got drafted. I, I go to Kingsport, Tennessee, so I'm there. I remember walking through the mall, and it was me, this guy, Floyd Yeomans. It was another black player that grew up with was on the team. And you could hear people kind of looking and staring. And I remember this one guy who was working at his vendor says, it must be baseball season. So I know what he meant because there's not really that many blacks in Kingsport, Tennessee. Right. Right. And the only other time was uh, we go to Johnson City. It's in the Appalachian League. Before the game, we're taking batting practice or whatever. And I'm warming up on the side, and you can hear these guys over there. And I remember like it was today. He goes, watch that in chunk that watermelon. So I'm throwing... So now, when I get done throwing, I'm hanging out in the outfield, shagging balls. They're yelling all kinds of stuff at me and these other guys. And I remember this guy, Leon Williams, was the center fielder. He goes, Doc, if they say one more word, we're going up there to get him. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> you go up there and get him. I'm not going up there. Really? But that was the really only time I experienced anything like that. Really? Um, once, so when you came to New York, none of that? No, I never got none of that. In your years York. in pro ball, none of that? No. Never had any of that. Everybody was an equal. Everybody was equal, yes. Everybody was, it was great. I and was even among the players? Among the Everybody well. was a brother in arms. Yes, definitely. To win so I never had that problem up here. Um, in my life, I've always accorded a certain kind of respect and a kind of glory to pro athletes that I don't give to people in my business. You know what I mean? Like if you said to me, who's an actor you'd love to meet? Hmm. I'd say, well, Humphrey Bogart I'd love to meet. Hmm. I want to meet William Holden. Hmm. But to me, um, athletes have always been you know, just magnetic to me. Mm-hmm. We used to play a game. We'd say, if you could be any athlete, if you could play any pro position and you were guaranteed 10 years healthy, mm-hmm. you wouldn't get a debilitating injury. You'd be healthy for 10 years. You'd get the crap beat out of you, but you'd <laughs> never, you'd have to work hard. But if you could have any 10 years in any individual sport or team sport, in any position, what would you take? And if you couldn't play baseball, and I hate this question because it's a hokey question, but if you couldn't play baseball, what would you be? What sport would you dominate? For dominate, I don't know if I would dominate, but I guess if uh, football is my sport, like even though I play baseball, obviously, but I'm more of a football fan. fan. Oh, definitely. On Sundays, you know, know, I go to church, you know, hit a meet, and then I'm in my basement the rest of the night. (laughs) That's just the way it is. Who's your team? Giants. Big Giant fan. Me too. 
I would say I would like to be on the defensive end of safety. You would. The thing is, I played quarterback when I was very young. You did. But I, I didn't like contact. You know, I was a real thin kid, so I didn't like contact. I like to hit guys on defense where you're just worrying about you know, getting an interception and running in. But I would definitely say You want to hit people, not be hit. Exactly. Well, well, well. That's like pitching. You're on the defensive side. You don't have to worry about the hitting part, especially right, in America. Right, 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 right. See, my guy would have been Lawrence Taylor. On the field. Yeah, right, right. And the reason I said because I've never seen a defensive guy on the field just change the game, just change the entire game. And you can see the fear in the quarterback guys, and he's talking smash to them. Like, I watched some of the highlights and the sounds of the game, watching him how he's just talking smack to the quarterbacks and then doing it. So I just love to know, get that feeling one time on a, a defensive side, you know, like Lauren Tanner's had, just totally dominate. Um, what do you say to your kids? Your kids are how old? My kids are from 3 to 27. So you have um, kids that know who, how, your top three oldest are how old? 27? Yeah, 27, 23, 21, then I have an 18 and 16. Right, so of, from 16 and above, let's say, of that age, when they might be sticking their hand in a cooler down there in tide water, uh, what do you say to them when they, because they know all about you, it's in the book. They know all about me with the book, and even before the book came out, I would talk to my kids um, when they drink water, I said, look, use me as an example. Uh, I, like I, my older kids, when I got to the point, felt comfortable. I had to talk with them. I said, basically, to tell you how powerful drugs and alcohol is, I basically divorced you guys and your mother for drugs. Yeah. I said, so just picture that. I said, you guys know how it felt when I wasn't around. That's how insidious it is. Right. And when I wasn't at your school activities, when I wasn't at your game, or if I was there, I really Did you miss a lot of that? There. Miss a lot of that. And I say, just think what that did to me. And I said, and you guys know my heart. You, you guys know the type of person. I said, but once you get involved with that, you're not the same, and not only do you hurt yourself, but you hurt your loved ones. Did like they I, forgive you? Like I hurt you guys, yes. That was one of the things they forgave me. All they want me to be is healthy and be accountable to them. I don't make any promises to them, obviously, but I'm always there. I talk to them daily now. Are they mostly where? Where do they live most? Are they spread out all over? Yeah, my oldest daughter you know, lives up here with me, and my two little ones, I have a three and eight, that's with me in the rest Are of the you married now? Yes. What does your wife do? She's a school teacher. What does she teach? Math. She Math teach- and art. In a school, well, in like a public school? Things. Yeah, so mostly art, in Jersey? In Jersey, and then like now this summer she's doing something in Maryland. Where did you meet her? I actually met her, the first time I met her was in Detroit, and we met through a mutual friend. She was a flight attendant, and a guy I grew up with was a flight attendant. What is it with you pro athletes and flight attendants, man? My no, God. It just, it's such a cliche. Yeah, definitely. She's a flight attendant. She was a flight attendant and a mutual friend. How long have you been married? Just, I've been married four years. And, what, and what, how many kids you have with her? Two. What are you doing with yourself now? Now what I do, I Other do. Than, I know what you're doing during the NFL season. Oh, you go to church, you hit yeah. a meeting, you're down in the basement on the big oh, jumbo screen watching TV all day. Definitely. Me and me both. Huh. That's it. Now I, um, I see my eight-year-old son. He plays baseball and football. Where I, is he? In Inglewood Clips. He's here. Okay. So I, um, when I have the opportunity, I help coach his team. I do work with the Mets and Yankees. Um, I couldn't do that when Mr. Samuel was living. It was only Yankee or nothing. So now, unfortunately, he's passed. I get to work a little bit with both teams. Right. I do that. Uh, do a lot of stuff with the youth program. And my true passion is anything with kids. Right. You ever throw a baseball anymore? Very little. <laughs> I can't believe you said that because I went to a golf tournament the other day and Doug Flutie was there, and I'm a huge Flutie fan. I said, you ever throw a football anymore? He says, no. They don't do it. Yeah. He never throws a football anymore. I said, you got to be kidding me. You must have thrown a football. You must have thrown a million footballs. I saw Flutie on his show, his reality show, with um, Tim Wakefield learning how to throw a knuckleball. That's pretty interesting. And you never throw a baseball anymore? I thought a little bit with my kids, but nothing off the mound, nothing like that. Nothing. No throwing no. out a ball in a well, first like the, game. The old timers game. game. Oh, yeah, I've done the first ball. I've yeah. done that. That's fun. And um, actually, about two weeks ago, I played in a Dodgers Yankee old timers game at Dodger Stadium. It was pretty cool. If the if the Doc Gooden you are now, or I should say the Dwight Gooden you are now, could go back and talk to the Doc Gooden then, what would you say to him? Maybe I would say, be honest with yourself. Remove that mask. You know, speak your mind. Put yourself in a good position instead of pleasing others, even though it's dangerous for myself. And you felt you did a lot of people pleasing. A lot of people pleasing. Uh, I still struggle with that today. Not as bad as I was, but it's still room for improvement. Why do you think you did that? I think it just started when I was a kid. And part of me is... uh, To survive in that household. Survive in the household. And not only that, I have a genuine heart, but also I got to understand you got to draw a line somewhere. You can't put yourself in a dangerous way. Your dad died when? Uh, he passed away in 1997. 1997. Where were you when your dad died? Actually, um, I was in Tampa when it happened. Um, actually, the last game my dad saw me pitch was a no-hitter, and I talk about that in the book where uh, he had he had been struggling for a while with his kidney failure. his on dialysis for like 15 years. His health was deteriorating, and they felt he had to have emergency heart surgery. 
they felt if he didn't have the surgery, he probably wouldn't last a month or two. And even if he had the surgery, it can't guarantee he's going to last a month or two, but they definitely had to have the surgery. The day that pitched no hit, I was supposed to fly home to build him that day because I was having the surgery the next morning. I had my flight reservation and everything, but uh, when I woke up that morning, you know, I remember taking a shower and brushing my teeth, and I just started reminiscing of all the days we spent at the park, him teaching me the drills, me and him going to the spring training games, me and him watching games on TV. What did you learn from him? I learned from him, like, how to pitch. Basically, I knew everything I knew, learned about baseball was from him. Um, and What did you learn from him as a father? As a father, is putting family first. Right. Understanding. You believe he did that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Understanding. In his uh, way. In his way, yeah. I mean, he might have didn't live it, but just telling me, you know, family comes first, family values, set a good example for your kids as well. So that day, I felt he'll probably— But in some ways, he didn't set a good example for you. Well, with the womanizing or whatever, <laughs> even though but that's, I, I that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm wonder if sometimes that's part of what happened was you trying to make peace with those two. Because that's where I came to in my life. Once I got sober and I started to examine what was bothering me, what I began to realize was that my parents were people. Yeah. Did yeah. you find that that was a part of what ate at you? No. Um, the contradictions well, inside your dad? With, with him, no, I would say not at all. Um, he was there, like a lot of things that he was doing, I thought was normal. And you thing. became a womanizer. Yeah, I became a womanizer. And yeah. the thing my dad was doing with the drinking whatever, like I never actually saw him with the one whatever, so right. he kept it all the way from my house. Sure. My parents never argued in front of me, so I just right. thought it was, you know, everything was great. So you sang that song, Daddy's Got a Girlfriend. Right. <laughs> you outed yeah. your father. He, he would give me a water or something, so I threw him <laughs> under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> you, actually, you accidentally threw him under the bus. That's, yes. a, that's a wild thing you described in the book. Oh, yeah, that's really, really cool. Huh. Well, I just want to say that um, I, I really am very grateful to you that you wrote that book. I mean, right. I really, really commend you for writing that book. You, you, Thank you. you. I appreciate it. You, you, you did the Dr. Drew thing what year? That was uh, 2011. So you went back because you went out again. Yes. And you went out when? You were sober from when to when? From the last time, from uh, 2010, I was very active in my addiction when I was going through this divorce. But you were sober 2000? Yes, 2000. To, till when? 2000 um, to 2003, and then I went back out. Then I was basically in, in, and, out. in, in and out of my addiction until From 2003 2011. to 2011? Yes. So you're in and out for eight more years? Yes. And you got busted? Uh, 2010, yes. Yeah, 2010, get busted where? Well, what happened was um, in Franklin Lakes in New Jersey. I had um, got charged with child endangerment where I took Ambien the night before. woke right. up to take my son to school and obviously hit a car. Yeah. And they wanted to get me out and do the field sobriety test, which as they were talking to me, I'm dozing off. Yeah. And you must yeah. have taken a couple of Ambien. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Sounds like you took more than one Ambien. Right. So then you get charged. Get charged. And it's child endangerment because you were in a vehicle with a child. Yes. How old was the child? My son at that time, that was 2010. You know, he would have been five. So you were married to your wife then? Yes. You were newly married almost. Yes. And uh, what happened? Did you go to prison? To jail, rather? No. Got no time. No time. Got probation, and I went, that's when I went to the Dr. Drew show. What, 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 what did you think was unique about that? What helped you about that? Going to Dr. Drew? Yeah. I did think it help you? It definitely helped me, but I think the thing was I was ready to get help. The times right. before I went to treatment, I was just basically there doing my time. As you know, in treatment, what you put in is what you get out. I was just ready. It was a time in my life where I knew— I had been to, you know, rehabs, I've been to institutions, I've been to jail, I've been to prison. The only thing waiting was the cemetery. When did you go to prison? I went to prison in 06. For? For uh, a technical violation, for it was a relapse. How long were you in there? Ten and a half months. What was that like? Horrible. I mean, Where that was you? horrible. In Gainesville, Florida. That was horrible. Anytime you get locked up, incarcerated, it's horrible. What facility? You were in a state but, prison? But, but going there at the age 40 is horrible. State prison? Yes. You were in a state prison in Gainesville, Florida for 10 months? Yes. And they all knew who you were. Yes. And did all, like, the biggest, I mean, I'm making a joke here, but, like, the biggest, toughest guys in the prison who could probably beat the crap out of you come up and tell you that they would protect you if you taught them the secret of how to throw the the fastball? (laughs) I didn't get into that. Did you take uh, a ball and, like, show them how the fingers go over the laces and they leave you alone? No. You you, you look at some guy and go, all right, listen, uh, Ray, I'm going to show this to you one time. And then that's it. And I want you to promise me you're going to leave me alone. And there you find out the first day you're there, you're just a number. You're not even a name. It's horrible. Yes. Who, did you become friends with it? Did you have any? What kind of well, a time did a you couple, have? There was a couple guys that I knew from as kids that I hadn't seen since childhood. <laughs> and you found them in there. Found them in there because they'd been in and out their whole life. Jesus. So, but that didn't help the time go by fast. It was just a horrible, horrible time, horrible experience. And when you got out of there, how did you feel? It was different, and I totally agree. Um, a guy was telling me when guys get incarcerated and you're there for basically ten months or longer, 
it takes that same amount of time when you get out to get back to yourself. And I found that once I got out, I was still living like I was a prisoner. I wouldn't go anywhere. I was just staying in the house. I was just, you know, basically doing time yeah. on the street. So it was a horrible, horrible time to I can get comfortable. Who helped you? I had uh, started going to the meetings. After that, I uh, got a sponsor, this guy, Ron Doc, who now works. That's when you first went to meetings after that? No, I went to meetings before. Right, got it. But I just got totally locked in. So the back meetings. into the program, the program saved you. Yeah, they got me going and got me, you know, feeling good about myself again. So 2011, you, uh, Franklin Lakes, the car thing, Ambien, the child, child endangerment. You don't do any time. No, and I had five months probation and basically had to go to, to treatment. Went to uh, Dr. Drew. I was there for three weeks, and when I got out, I went to treatment. How did here. he strike you? How yeah. did he help you? He was a nice guy. And yeah. When I got out, I went to uh, New Jersey for a year, outpatient, and that's, that's what been keeping me going. Right. How was your wife? Is she cool about it? No. Support? No. Okay, no. No, that was... <laughs> that was a tough time. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a story for another day, but yeah. uh, it was okay. It's a tough thing, though. You know, it's, oh, a it's tough very thing. tough. That's, yeah. what, that's the thing I tell my kids. It's tough not only on you, but it's tough on all your loved ones. Yeah, you it's put everybody tough. else through it. Yes, you definitely. Know? I got people in my family, man. It's like they got a lot of wreckage in their past. They got a lot. A lot of stuff is on their times. You can't have them forgive you on your time because we'll do it like right now. So they have to work through their things and get to a point where they accept what happened. We can't force them. That's the thing that I found out. You can learn more about Dwight Gooden's life in his recently released autobiography, Doc, a Memoir. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now.